Hello! The winner is... Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in Cinemaland. I, Oscar the Academy Award. Hello! And welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast we talk about the most Oscar nominations, but no wins. And by that, I mean, of course, the movie that somehow achieves that goal, not just about like, oh, these are some nominations, then we move on. No, we talk about the movie. I'm Danny Vincent. I'm your host. We're here to talk about a movie. And there are two other people here with me that are the other hosts of this podcast. Yeah, hi, I'm Sarah Kanosh. <laughs> I we'll see if I remember how to do this. We'll see. <laughs> and I'm Caleb Bunn. I don't know about you, but it's 2022. Uh and we're going back to the 15th Academy Awards, which we already talked about in the episode before our last episode. Um, because there's another film that qualifies. Um, to quickly recap without getting in all the details we normally do, because I went into all the details last time. 15 Academy Awards, Mrs. Miniver led with 12 nominations and won six of them. Pretty impressive statistic. Uh, then The Pride of the Yankees had 11 nominations, won one. Then Yankee Doodle Dandy had eight nominations and won three of those nominations. And then there were two movies that had seven nominations and no wins. One of them was Random Harvest, which we covered last month. And the other was The Talk of the Town, which we watched today now sarah yes what was the talk of the town nominated for all right okay so talk of town was nominated for uh best picture and it lost to mrs miniver best original motion picture story for sydney harman who lost to emmerich pressburger for 49th parallel um and just kind of Get this out of the way. Uh, Best story refers more to the treatment of a script versus the script itself. Um, The category was eliminated in 1956 after um, independent films sort of started to emerge more. Um, uh, Best original screenplay for Erwin Shaw and Sidney Buckman, um, who lost to Michael Cannon and Ring Lardner Jr. for Woman of the Year. Um, Buckman was nominated three more times, and he actually had won the previous year for Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Um, Best Art Direction Black and White for Lionel Banks, uh, Rudolph Sternad, and Faye Babcock. Um, And they lost to Richard Day and Joseph C. Wright and Thomas Little for This Above All. Um, Banks was nominated six more times. Sternad was nominated two more times. Um, Babcock was nominated one more time. And she's also the first woman to be nominated in this category. Um, Best Cinematography, Black and White, for uh, Ted Tatslaff. um, And he lost to Joseph Rudenberg for Mrs. Miniver. Best Editing uh, for Otto Meyer. um, And he lost to Daniel Mandel for The Pride of the Yankees. um, And he was also nominated for Theodore Goes Wild in. 1936 and then finally uh best score for a non-musical picture uh for frederick hollander and morris stoloff and they lost to max steiner for now voyager um hollander was nominated one more time for score and two more times for song um and stoloff won three times and was nominated 13 more wow 
<sighs> I gotta say, um, somehow we've made it this far in the podcast, and I just now realized what you just said about story and screenplay being separate. Mm-hmm. This what? <laughs> what? <laughs> that might come in useful for me since I have so many problems with the screenplay noms. I might start doling out the best story thing. Well, cool. Uh, that's. Uh, Are you ready for some historical context, Danny? Yeah, I am. And mainly Sarah, but also I thought that Danny was gonna talk over me okay. and forget that I did <laughs> I this segment. Ex- I thought you were excluding me. <laughs> no. It was more about getting in front of Danny than anything else. Wow. You're so mean to me. What did I ever do to you? Uh, so 1942, big year. War continues. The UN gets formed so that uh, you know the allied powers can be like, okay, nobody make nice with uh, Germany before we end this thing properly. But on the home front, there are some interesting things that this movie touches on that um, we're playing out. One is the labor movement. Um, one of the characters in this is a... Uh, he's not explicitly a labor organizer, but you know, for all intents and purposes, he is. Um, and coming out of the New Deal era into World War II, they uh, America was kind of at the height of its uh, union representation and labor movement. Um, History.com says that by the end of World War II, 12 million workers um, were estimated to belong to unions, um, which is amazing. And imagine what we could do today. Everyone join a union. And then the other thing is Supreme Court was um, kind of going through this shift of becoming a little bit more, a little bit more partisan as uh, when Chief Justice Stone took over in 1941, uh, he and a lot of the Roosevelt appointees started backing up the administration's policies a lot more than they had. And it became the first, not the first time, but one of the first times that was really noticeable that the Supreme Court was not just this independent body, but it was a partisan player, which doesn't directly affect the story, but I think it's helpful for us to kind of put ourselves back in time to when they talk about the Supreme Court in this movie, just be like, oh yeah, people had more trust in that institution than they might have now. Wow. A lot of interesting stuff there, I'd have to say. Thank you, Mr. Caleb. You're welcome, Mr. Daniel. Why are you talking like that? Because it's time for Danny's segment. That's right. Time for us to talk about the Oscar ceremony because we didn't do it when we talked about Random Harvest. Caleb's walking away. Um, no, I'm not. I'm plugging in my phone. This, who's ready for some fun facts? And by fun facts, I mean a summary of the Wikipedia description. Don't give away our secrets. All right. So the ceremony is most famous for the speech by Greer Garson, who won Best Actress for Mrs. Miniver. Uh, her acceptance speech lasted six minutes and is generally considered to be the longest acceptance speech at Academy Awards ceremony. I assume that means for a competitive category and not like, you know, special honors type of thing, you know? Um, this is the first, Mrs. Miniver is the first film to garner five acting nominations because I got double nominated one of the categories. Um, 
Irving Berlin was asked to present the award for best song, and he wanted himself for White Christmas, which feels like a little awkward moment to me. Uh, best documentary had a four-way tie. <laughs> Always fun when that happens because that means you know what that means. You know what that what means. What does that mean, Danny? I'm asking you if you know what it means. We don't I guess know. You don't. We're asking you. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I was wrong. I was just checking to make sure. I was gonna be like, I was hoping there's only five nominations there, so there's just like one oh, <laughs> nomination no. let off. We're documentary no. during the war. No way. Yeah. Yeah, they're all war. They're all war docs. You're correct. Um, yeah, all four of these war docs won. Um, and yeah, that's the so that's what happened. Uh, the Memorial Award went to Sidney Franklin that year. Irving Thalberg Memorial Award went to Sidney Franklin. Uh, who directed a bunch of movies, none of which I recognize the name of. So yeah. All right, so... The talk of the town. Okay, All right, cool. y'all. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> we are we are coming into 2022 with a or uh, sorry, I won't speak for you two. The Snub Club is not a monolith. I am coming into Snub Club 22, Snub Club of 22, with some weird energy because I started this movie just guessing by the poster that it was a comedy. And that Cary Grant was in it. But then it starts out super seriously with this really intense opening that has a lot of cuts and is very exciting. I, really and I was like, the oh, go on though. Maybe we're getting a drama. But then the score starts playing and it's the wackiest sitcom score ever. And I'm like, we are getting a comedy. And that was like the entire first act for me was like, is this a comedy or is this a drama? Oh, wait, yeah, it's, it's both. a weird. It's a weird movie. It's a movie that I watched a long time ago. Two whole days ago. Oh, wow. Wow. I know. Yeah. You're like, Danny, how could you how could you do such a thing? I'll tell you how I did such a thing. By watching it two days ago. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I thought this was good. Hold on, I'm actually trying to open up my uh, letterbox review, which I haven't published yet to try to like jog my memory really on my initial thoughts because I always write my reviews right after I see the movie. So if you're on Letterboxd and you followed this link to this podcast from there, <laughs> congrats, you're gonna get what you just read again. Um, I thought it was really good because I lo- I liked the plot, which was really like it felt creative to me, but still like it fit. Like, and how, like, you know, it kind of spiraled, kind of sprawled. It kind of kept changing what it was about, too. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. However, as is usual with these types of comedies, is that whenever they became about romance, uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> I found the plotting much more interesting than the romance here. And uh, uh, of the three, I definitely think there's a highlight of the three leads. Well, actually, let me rephrase. I think there are two of the leads here that are very good. And there's one that kind of is just like, he's okay. Spoiler, it's not Gene Arthur. Because Gene Arthur is a woman. <laughs> I said he. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I really enjoyed this. Um, it kind of uh, bounces around a lot. Yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, this is probably a podcast since I watched it like two or three days ago. I will be like uh, more reacting to what you guys are saying, even though and I'll probably be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I like this part, you know, so. Yeah, Um, I don't know. I watched it a whopping three days ago, so I don't know. I <laughs> I have an interesting take about this movie, and that is that I would say like 10 years ago, I was very into like TCM and like not even I would say like more like like 13 years ago even before I was very into like TCM I was very into like old movies and old stars and I feel like current me 2022 me is not really feeling Cary Grant so much at least not in this movie I think it's a that's who that's who my weak guy is I feel like He's just, it's weird. It feels in a sense, because um, we've talked about, actually in last time's episode, how he's kind of like, Cary Grant is very comfortable to George Clooney today. And to me, it felt like, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't know how long Cary Grant has been relevant, but this felt to me like when you watch like a George Clooney movie from like the mid-90s before he like really was a star, and it's just kind of like boring. Like his role is boring. I think this movie belongs to Gene Arthur and Ronald Coleman like significantly because uh, it's also like Cary Grant isn't really funny in this I feel like I never really laughed at him he's like the serious yeah. part of the movie and I think that that's kind of I mean we've sort of talked about this before but like when I think of Cary Grant personally he's either you know the screwball comedy guy and the arsenic and old lace you know type or he's the Hitchcock lead and I feel like in this he just he's like the romantic lead but he's just not very good in it he just feels i don't know he feels like he's preventing the movie from either going full comedy or full drama yeah so at this point in his career he had already done the philadelphia story he had already done his girl friday he had already done bringing up baby um i always forget he's in his girl friday for some reason I don't know why. Even though he's the lead, he also did. He also had done some dramas. He did Only Angels Have Wings. I um, mean, he had done some other war movies. So he already kind of had that kind of kind of what you were saying, Sarah. He kind of already had that um, dual persona ingrained. But the difference between those movies and this one is that he is the undisputed lead in those movies. Now, he is billed above Ronald Coleman here, but I would argue that Ronald Coleman is the lead. Like, he is the person driving this story, unless, of course, we count Nora. I was going to say, he's um, the male lead. He, I think the other, yeah. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. Nora would be the lead to me overall. But go on, sorry. I liked Cary Grant in this, but very much as him playing a very particular type of person, where it's like, this guy has a lot of opinions and he is wrong about probably at least a quarter of them, but he's just very passionate about the 75% he's right in. And he's just going to do anything to get those through. That is a very annoying person to be around, but it's an interesting character in this movie. So I don't buy him as a romantic interest in this movie. 
And in our group chat earlier, um, we were being like, are we team carrier or, or team grant or are we team Coleman? And I was like, kind of thinking back on it, I'm like, well, if we, if she has to end up with one of them, she definitely shouldn't end up with grant. Cause he would make a terrible partner to anyone. Well, I feel like he has, she has to end up with Grant because in the whole, th- otherwise Coleman, it's like a weird, like, you know, he's a uh, way older than her, at least in terms of, st- in the terms of the story, it definitely feels like he's way older than her. Yeah. The way they talk about I mean, him. in real life, he was 10 years older than her. Okay. But in, in film, it feels like he's way older. Like, it definitely feels like that's the way he's written is to be like 15 or 20 years older. And also moreover he's put in a position of authority above her. I don't know. Just felt a little weird to me personally. I but, never, I never viewed them as romantic. In this but film. if anyone should be getting together in this movie, it should be Coleman and Grant. They would make such a great power couple. <laughs> like they would probably have a very messy divorce, like two years later, but I think they would get stuff done in Washington. <laughs> you know what? I thought the ending was going to be actually though. Uh, because it, it's so weird at the end, and we're gonna we're gonna go through this like all around. But at the end, it's like I think I can't remember who says it. I think Jean Arthur says it, and she's like, uh, I forget the name of the town. She's like, oh, I, one of them goes, oh, I could never leave there or something. I'm like, why? Everyone in this town is horrible to you. I felt like the ending being set up was Grant and Nora running off together, and Nora working as Ronald Coleman's secretary at the Supreme Court, like. That's like, okay, yeah, then they can all still be friends, you know, like yeah. that, that's, that's like the logical ending here. But then I think one of them, yeah, one of them's just like, oh, I could never leave town. It's like, why? No one in this town likes you. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering it, but I definitely remember there was like a line that stuck out to me near the end. Where no, like, I know oh, what I you're talking about. Leave. Yeah. And it's like, why? <laughs> why? I feel like... Well, I have a thought about that in general, just like the the whole crime thing. But we'll get to it when we break it down more. Yeah, uh, there's definitely one thing I want to talk about. Also, this movie that I definitely remember, but I'm gonna wait till we reach to it and reach it in. The, I uh, have thoughts about have that as well. I have thoughts about that as well. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's go through the plot. It opens with a nice montage of. Um, you know, the opening fire. Uh, fire. Yeah, fire and um, newspaper headlines. Yeah. A lot of fun newspaper headlines. It's um it's setting up that there's been this fire at the factory in town and that the factory head is blaming I forget the character's name, but it's Carrie Grant's character. Leopold Dilg is his name. Yeah, Dilg. Unfortunately. They always name. call him, yeah. I feel like Leopold is so weird because his cover name is Joseph. And then he's like a working class man. It's like, your actual name is Leopold. I don't know. Just saying Leopold sounds like. I'm very confused by the like working class and like, you know, upper society vibes in this movie because of Ronald Coleman's beard. (laughs) I'm very confused by that dynamic. (laughs) The beard. The beard is a. (laughs) The beard is a choice. Um, there's a lot of a lot of talk in this film about the beard. Sorry. For my historical segment uh, segment, I did look up history of facial hair in 1940s because I was like, they bring it up so much. This had to be more relevant than it was. But I couldn't find anything other than beards were not that popular. 
Anyway, yeah. So the inciting incident is that Dilg escapes from jail, um, finds Nora, and it's like, oh, can you help me stay here? But Professor Lightcap, which is Ronald Coleman, shows up pretty much immediately after Dilk shows up because he's rented the place for the summer so he can write a book. Um, and so Dilk hides in the attic. So that's basically the inciting incident of the film. Um, and it sets up this great thing where it's like, um, Professor Lightcap is a professor of law. And the, their friend, what's the name of their friends? You know what I mean? Like they have the friend. The lawyer? Yeah. Sh- yeah, it's Sam. Sam, yes. So Sam and Nora get this idea because they like Dilg that they convince Lightcap to help them with Dilg because he's incredibly professional, obviously. Um, he's a professor. Uh, a lot of people know his books. He's very famous um, in the world. And of course, we find out later on that he's going to be a Supreme Court judge. Um, so we are still kind of jumping around a bit. Um, so what you get is a bunch of comedic scenes where... Lightcap is like, I don't want to hear anything about this Dilk person. I just want to enjoy my summer. And Nora, like, comes up with ways to bring it up uh, to him. Or, like, have the... And Sam, Sam too, like, lead them into situations where the stuff would happen. Um, and it's, wh- it, Sorry. It's just a ton of fun sitcom scenarios where, like, she's trying to get uh, Dilk out of the house before he finds out. But that leads to her having to stay the night and then in the morning everyone's coming in because yeah, no one like they're all surprised and they're all scandalized that she borrowed a pair of his pajamas and then Lightcap was had, not supposed to come until noon the following day so there's a bunch of furniture people there to be yeah. furniture too. It's like a reporter, some furniture people, her mother, the cops show up. <laughs> it's just this it's it's a really fun episode of like I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke Show or something. I think Ronald Coleman plays the humor in this movie so well because he's just constantly like vaguely annoyed but also amused by it. And uh, I really enjoy like he's really good in this. Uh, very likable. We love you, Ronald Coleman. Nice beard, too. Uh- <laughs> That's arguable. This beard is so weird. It's like it's pointed so at the chin, and like I mean, apparently, I liked it a lot. I thought it was. A good it doesn't. Know. It doesn't go up the cheeks at all. No, it's like it's just. It's kind of like like the like cartoon like devil beard. I uh, yeah I was gonna, yeah I was gonna say Dracula beard but yeah it's devil just, beard makes more sense. <laughs> I don't know. Like apparently, I do have a little bit of a a little bit of a trivia, in that originally, like they did a bunch of tests. With like different types of beards, because you need to have a beard, and they were gonna do like some really like bushy beards and stuff, and the studio was like, we didn't hire Ronald Coleman to just not show his face, so they needed to get a better beard. Which <laughs> like I, I like this uh this interesting thing that says here, uh, where it says the talk of the town began with the working title Mr. Twilight, but Cary Grant insisted it be changed. Because he said that if the movie appeared to be about a single male character, Coleman would obviously steal the show. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, the movie's called The Talk of the Town. I feel like Coleman definitely steals the movie from Cary Grant. It's so... <laughs> I'm upset. As a as a beard wearer, 
I'm upset by the notion that you're unrecognizable if you have a beard on. Well, it's weird, too, because, like, I mean, we've obviously seen Ronald Coleman movies. Like, we know that he has a signature look, and that's his little mustache. And it's, I don't maybe they could have just talked about his mustache? I mean, I don't know. No, but because he keeps the mustache. He does keep the mustache. Of course, he, was, he would never get rid of his mustache, of course. Other people have mustaches. No one else has ever seen a man with a beard before. I just, to me, personally... I mean, times are different now, and like beards are not offensive to me. I'm not a, like I'm not an employee at like Disney World. I don't think that beards are <laughs> offensive, but like there is this kind of like societal notion that if you have a longer beard, that you are, you know, more working class or like blue collar or whatever. And in this movie, it feels like the opposite. Everybody's like, "Oh, he's got a beard. He's so he's so uppity." Yeah, yeah. I think what? he specifically says it's because he wants to look older and more distinguished, and he's an old man at heart. Yeah, I think it's just something weird that he does. It would be like, I don't know, like sh- someone shaving half their head nowadays, I guess. I don't know. Like, people just treat it like it's the strangest thing. I get beards weren't as common in the 40s, but it just it, it goes over the top every now and then. I also want to point out they make this big deal about how he's like older and he turns 40 in the movie and gene arthur was 41 when this was made and i i need to read the the iodb trivia because it's so rude to her <laughs> like the way that it describes her in this movie is so disrespectful um let me see if i can find it all right, Jean Arthur was 41 when she made this film, but only admitting to 30-something. Careful lighting, darker hair, false eyelashes, and more youthful-looking clothing succeeded in maintaining the illusion most of the time. But unkind, relentless close-ups more than once gave the game Thanks. away. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> she was 41. She wasn't 80. Um, eventually... She gets Lightfoot to hire her as his cook slash stenographer so that she can stay on the property and keep an eye on Grant. And meanwhile, Grant convinces him that he's the gardener. Yes, because Grant can't keep his mouth shut when he hears him talking about law and he just has to come out of hiding and be like, you think you know anything about law? Let me tell you there, buddy. I have a different relationship with the law. To me, uh, this is billed as a comedy, and yet I don't think Ronald Coleman and Cary Grant ever share any funny scenes. They pretty much come out, talk like philosophy, and then it's like, oh, okay, (laughs) back to the actual fun. (laughs) This is a comedy through and through. Like, there's this great moment where they're just doing all these dissolves to the people, different people in the house snoring, and like making it. So that Coleman thinks that it's Arthur snoring instead of Grant. Yeah, that's but right. but then it will turn around and it will be like, what is the duty of a civilian to like to follow the law or to question the law? And it takes its ideas very seriously, which I do appreciate. I do like like the dramatic sting like noise when you hear uh, Dill go. I'm he's not gonna like baseball. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they trick. They don't really trick. They convince Lightfoot 
that he is he's too cooped up so he has to go like experience life from like the everyday man's perspective so he goes to a baseball game but you realize the only reason they did that was so he could meet this corrupt judge and realize that the law isn't this like perfect ideal thing that gets corrupted but it's just it's so it's so funny to do this smash cut from this movie that has only taken place in this house to suddenly you're at a baseball game and everyone's screaming at everyone else I also just like, uh, I think one of the funniest j- running jokes in the movie is how like Cap pretty much, I don't, like he says he doesn't know what's going on, but it'll be like, he'll be like, I just want to go as soon as he encounters anyone remotely related to the case. <laughs> like, like, like she's like, this way's quicker. Uh, at one point when they're like walking past like a protest, no, no, walking past the burn factory where the owner of it's like posing for pictures. And he's like, I just want to get home. Please just don't talk to me. No one talk to me here, please. Well, it's not the owner. Because the owner is dead. No, no, worker is dead. The owner is still out yeah, there. The foreman's but they dead. Have, yeah, they've posed the foreman oh, gotcha. to go off to Boston and hide. Spoilers. Um, yeah. Which is weird. We talk about the spoilers. <laughs> so you have the sitcom act, but then eventually the cops or Coleman finds out that Grant is Dilge, and so he calls the cops, and it turns into the detective arc. I'm sorry. Wait, before we do that, can I tell you about my absolute favorite joke in this movie? Yeah, uh, it's um, I can't remember the full. I think it's like uh, Nora. Wakes up, she sees someone else's newspaper while um, 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 Lightcap is getting ready to read his. It's just seared really dramatic music. And she like runs in and just slides eggs in front of the front page, which has uh, Dilg's face on it. And then she's like, you should have eaten me. You forgot to wait for my eggs or something like that. But it's like so ridiculous. How like the eggs perfectly cover his face. <laughs> she is great at physical comedy in this. Um, there are several parts where she just kind of goes from standing still to she's across the room in like seconds. Um, she really uses moving around in spaces to like accentuate comedy. Yeah, she's a. They're both really. I think both Coleman and Arthur are really good in this because uh, I think they both. Granted, I haven't seen much of Gene Arthur. But Ronald Coleman, everything we've seen him before, I don't think he's ever been funny. And this very smartly uses, like, how he isn't funny to be funny. You know what I mean? Like, very much playing the comedic straight men well. Um, and then Gene Arthur, as you said, great physical comedy throughout. But you're right. Then it becomes a detective arc. You're right. But before we get to that, um, he discovers the newspaper after he bought, uh, what's it, Borscht? Borscht. Borscht. And if I mispronounce it, it's okay, because... One of the characters always mispronounces it. Uh, he buys some borscht with an egg in it, which reveals to the person who makes the borscht that it must be for Dilg, because Dilg is the only person who's you ever met who likes borscht with an egg, egg in it. Same time, Lightcap discovers the paper that revealed, because for some reason they just left it in the house. She Harper didn't throw it away at, at the most... Uh, you know what I mean? Like, that's what made me laugh when that happened. I was like, why Why is this still here? This was, like, weeks ago in movie time, well, you know? 
It, the jar got wrapped. Well, because it was wrapped. It was the board. Oh, yeah, wrapped you're, right. At the store. you're right. You're right. Yeah. Makes sense. Never mind. Which I kind of thought might have been intentional by the like by the guy who made the borscht, but I'm not totally sure. Um, but yeah, so he discovers that Dilga and he means like I have to call the cops because that's what law dictates I must do, even though we're friends. Yeah, he seems. Can I just say he seems way more betrayed by Dilg than he does by Nora. Like he's like really upset. It's because, <laughs> but only he's because romantically of his attracted to Dilk. <laughs> I mean, I, I I get more of that vibe than I get with Nora. <laughs> with Nora, I feel like Nora's just trying to get these guys in line, and these guys are like, "Let's talk philosophy and play chess." <laughs> Listen, if people can believe that Professor X and Magneto are having a thing in first class then is it really that much of a leap to believe that Dilg and Lightfoot are having a thing in this one? Well, I mean, this one was made 50, 60 years earlier, but... You know what? We can tell that Dilg, excuse me, Lightcap cares for Dilg because he lies about him for the cops. Yeah, but that's later. We have have more. No, because he's going to call the cops. Yeah. Oh yeah, Dilg, yeah. Dilg's Dilg like, if you call out. the cops, I'm going to do this. I'm going to hit you. And he's like, but I must do this. And he's like, all right, well then do it then, and I'll hit you. And like they talk, they say it like three or four and times. He knocks him out. And then he finally calls. <laughs> you know what this movie is? It's an alignment chart because like you've got lawful good life foot, then you've got chaotic good Dilge, and then uh, Nor is just in the middle. At neutral good. Yeah. Nora's just like, guys, stop. (laughs) So then, like, so the police, no, the police don't come this time. He does call again later. Um, He gets knocked out, and his friend shows up, and his friend. What? His friend has a very interesting part later in the movie. Um, but his friend shows up, and I don't know. He just, like, something motivates Lightcap to continue with the case. Well, I think it's, I I think exactly it's just it he's having a character arc. I think it's his time with Dilge and Nora has made him rethink some of his principles. And then we get the great moment that really symbolizes his character arc. Which is he shaves. <laughs> shaves the beard and his friend. I have a theory about this scene. Okay. So his friend is played by a black man. His friend is played by Rex Ingram. Rex Ingram. And, and it's he's his butler. And Yeah. Um and he gets like these dramatic close-ups while Lightcap is shaving his beard, where the friend's name, what is his name? His his name is Tilney. Yes, these dramatic close-ups where he's crying. And I have a theory that this was kind of meant to be like very progressive at the time. I think that they wanted to give this actor like a very 
like not aggravate moment, but like a kind of a meaningful moment in the movie. Um, obviously, it looks very goofy now, but at the time, I don't know. Maybe people like maybe it really resonated with. Well, and people. he does get that scene later on in the car where he's driving Lightfoot somewhere, and they're having a conversation very much as equals. Obviously, they're not equals because one's an employer. Um, but yeah, it's it's a thing where compared to other things we've watched, it's definitely more uh, more progressive, but still very much of the time. Um, I think the beard thing just comes down to they could actually shave the fake beard. And so they're like, oh, wait, we have to cut to something. Yeah, uh, the beard stuff is really like, it's weird. We've talked about it kind of already, you know? And that's a good point, Sarah, about Rex Ingram. So, yeah. So then Lightcap decides he's going to do his investigation. So he takes the girlfriend of the dead guy, dead guy, quote unquote, um, out for like dancing. And she's kind of a low class broad. And basically, I don't know, he gets her drunk. And she says, oh, you know, the guy, the foreman's not dead. He's in Boston. Um, I don't know. Like, to me, there's, like, some, like, class comedy stuff where, like, she asks for a kiss and he, like, kisses her on the forehead. Um, stuff like that. It's whatever. But anyways, they find out that uh, the guy is still alive. Yeah. And, like, and so know, they have to go hunt him down in the uh, yes. vigilante in the arc. <laughs> this is, is in the car. This is also, I'm not going to say that I am fully on board with this, but this also could potentially contribute to Caleb's theory, I guess. But Lightcap is like, Dill, you're coming <laughs> with. Uh, so <laughs> they all go oh, together. Also, there's this part that's where they have to pick up a cop and they have to hide Dilch in the back seat or whatever. But then the cop is like, do you have a cigarette? And they're like, no. He goes, oh, that's fine. He pulls out a cigarette from his coat. Why? Why are you trying to bum a cigarette when you've got one? I don't like this cop. He's a cop. Oh, I forgot. There's also a part with, I need to talk about the dogs. I need the character moment. I need to talk about the dogs. Um, there's like a part where they need to get they need to get off the scent of Dilg and all these dogs. There's like a ridiculous amount of dogs. Um, they like smell him on they smell like his like slippers or whatever, but it's actually light cap slippers. Basically, they put them on the scent of light cap so that they don't like look at the house anymore. There's a ridiculous amount of dogs. They bark for way too long. But dogs. But I needed to mention them because they're <laughs> dogs. Um, <laughs> it's true. But anyways, yeah, they go to Boston. This is all like a blur to me. They yeah, I really think the ending just kind of like happens. You know, I, I enjoy the movie more when it's like these people like all lying to each other and it's just goofy fun. They find the foreman. They bring him back, um, and they get him to confess us like the, the, uh, this was the only way that they he thought this was the only way they would get 
the factory to be demolished because it had unsafe working conditions or something like that. He has a reason for doing this other than just he's a bad person, even though he is. Um, But then he escapes right as Lightfoot calls the cops and he knocks out both Dilge and Lightfoot. So when the cops get there, they think that Dilge has attacked Lightfoot and they take him to prison. Like half. It's like yeah, Kathy. Yeah. The, the mayor of Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> She's been in the news. <laughs> Imagine living here. Yeah, and I'm then sorry. so then the police show up. The police show up and Dilge does this like crazy stunt over the stairs when he runs away. And Nora the whole time is like, oh no, what's going on? And so Dilch gets arrested finally, and then he goes to trial. Can I just? I I need to mention this. I'm sorry. I need to mention this. When Dilch escapes from prison, because we didn't talk about this, he straight up like strangles the guy that's guarding his cell. Like I don't think he killed him, but it's pretty violent. Yeah, the this movie is intense. I feel like yeah. I feel like the issue is is that I feel like we are told and. Objectively, in the story, Dilge is a, quote, good man. But then we get things where it's like, if you're on the phone, I'm going to have to knock you out and hurt you, my best friend. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it's supposed to be, like, trust on the audience's part. I mean, you're looking at Cary Grant, so you're supposed to be like, he can't be a bad guy. But to me, in like narratives like this, I always find it so questionable when people like try to like prove their innocence and they end up like beating people up and like committing more crimes to do it. I don't know. <laughs> um, they put him on trial and the, the town's been basically riled up with fake news. And so they want to just straight kill him. They're marching around outside. And... They're all like, oh no, this is this is really bad. He's gonna die. Oh wait. And uh, Evil Arthur dies tonight. Mentions, Evil yeah. dies tonight. Arthur seen. mentions something to Coleman about, well, you were dating this person. And he's like, Oh, that's where the foreman is hiding. So he runs over there, <laughs> goes into a room. And is like, I'm going to arrest you. And then they throw a chair at the window beside the room so you don't see any action, but you do get this great shot of a chair breaking a window. And then he drags him to the he drags him to the courtroom and being like, here's proof that Grant's innocent. And he gets put on the Supreme Court and Grant gets uh, Grant gets proven innocent. And then there's some question about which which guy Arthur will go with. And she ultimately decides Grant, but it doesn't matter because we know that either of those relationships would be doomed to fail. I disagree. I I didn't say it because I wanted to be brave, but I want to work up my courage. I think that she has so much chemistry with Ronald Coleman. And honestly, I don't think that it has anything to do with the script. I don't think it has to do with the story. I personally think that Ronald Coleman just has that natural charisma that comes through, and I definitely see the chemistry with them. I personally don't think that they would be toxic because I think that he actually goes through an arc versus Cary Grant literally just like, 
I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Can I just and say that's it? Very randomly, I had forgotten. I guess it's just been a month. He was in Random Harvest. <laughs> yeah, I used yeah. to give him an Aerosmith. He was His nominated for that. Isn't that much different? Random Harvest. Uh, post him getting his memories back it's just he's used much better here but i think you make i think you make a good case sarah i obviously was being tainted because i wanted the thing that would not have happened in 1942 but i think if we if we do have to pair her up with one of these two he is probably the best option and i think like a very for me like the really defining moment is like at the end when she's like, she's like, I don't know what to do. I need, I'm a woman. I need somebody to tell me what to do. And Ronald Coleman's like, well, you should marry Cary Grant. Um, and then like they go to his like swearing in or whatever. And she winks at him and he's like flustered. And Cary Grant sees it and he's like, oh, they must be a thing. And to me, it's like, if that can, can communicate to him that they like each other even if it's in in a friendly way i think that that to me showed way more chemistry than anything she had done with carrie grant yeah i mean i don't know i I, yeah i i don't i don't really care about the romance at all sorry (laughs) it's not i I need to be passionate about something in this otherwise i don't think the love triangle is unengaging i think what helps with is that it's kind of incidental to the plot um i think i just like love triangles more when they're like a secondary thing. I feel like that's more realistic to life. Well, let's give some fun facts. Cary Grant was paid $106,250 for this movie. I don't know why we have this, such a specific number. And Coleman got $100,000 for this movie. Gene Arthur only got $50,000. Classic Hollywood. Now, this is the more fun part, is that Talk of the Town, the title was registered to Universal, so Columbia had to trade the title Sin Town to Universal. But let's read the alternative titles and choose the best one, shall we? Okay. I like Sin Town already. That's not, well, well, that's not a title. Mr. Twilight was an option, cause, but <laughs> Cary Grant was like, I don't want the title character to be Coleman, because that's what's going to happen then. So Mr. Twilight... Three's a crowd. The gentlemen misbehave. Justice winks an eye. In love with you. You're wonderful. A local affair. The woman's touch. Morning for angels. Scandal in Rochester. The Rochester affair. Nothing ever happens. <laughs> These are all like so good, but so like bad. I'm a like, they're not gonna fit at all. <laughs> that is a really good one. I I like I like nothing. Hang on, I need to look at the list. I like nothing ever happened. I mean, like, if we're looking at like a title that actually conveys anything about the movie, I guess the the affair in Lochester or the Lochester affair. But I love I like these a local titles. affair though more. A local I, affair seems like it's a little more classy. The gentleman misbehave is pretty <laughs> good. <laughs> Justice Winks and I sounds like a Bond title. So does Mr. Twilight. Mr. Twilight and Justice Winks and I can totally be Bond movies. <laughs> I do love your wonderful. <laughs> You're wonderful. <laughs> That's so weird. 
Yeah. I just think that's funny. They're wonderful. Nothing ever happened. <laughs> what does that mean? Things happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of this movie that has such a convoluted plot. Nothing ever happens. <laughs> Nothing changes. I think. It, well, I get what does. it's going for. <laughs> It's like, it's a small town, you know, there's not anything going on. Nothing ever happens until it does. Like, I get that, but would I want to see a movie that's called Nothing Ever Happens? I just just like your wonderful, your wonderful wins for me, definitely. It's like, because I don't know who it's about. (laughs) It's like Merrily We Live or Love Affair. It's just, they have to have some underpaid a person at the studio just coming up with generic names that they can slot into literally any film. <laughs> well, yeah, if they had, if they traded titles, obviously they just have like a stockpile <laughs> of titles that they're going to use. I wonder what Sin Town was yeah, about. Was it ever made? It was the knockoff version of Sin City. <laughs> yeah, it was made. 1942, same year. It's a Western. What? Oh, uh, Constant Bennett as the Wii lead, and Ray Enright directed it. Wow, okay. I don't recognize any of Ray Enright's films, although he did make a movie called The Spoilers. Oil deals, gambling, and murder happen around a con man. You know what they could also have called that movie? You're wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now I have to look up if there was ever a movie titled You're Wonderful, because... Nope, there isn't any. No way. He's not on Let Wiki. Well, I might have to do some homework. I'll, I'll, I might have, have to write a, a, have to write a screenplay we'll called You're Wonderful. Because <laughs> that's too, think, much, too good of a title <laughs> not to use. Do you think they were going to use that title on another movie and then It's a Wonderful Life came out no. and they're like, oh, we don't want to get people confused? Well, I mean, in a couple of years from now, <laughs> there's a, another wonderful movie that comes out. But that's a few years from now, so... Uh, all right. You guys want to play the game? Nominated for <clears throat> uh, best picture, best original motion picture story, best original screenplay, best art direction, black and white, best cinematography, black and white, best editing, and best score. There's a few good options here. The score I remember while I was watching it reminded me of something. Oh, it reminded me of Star Wars. Yeah, I remember. Love yeah. Across the Stars. That was in my yeah. notes. I was gonna yes. bring that up when I talked about the score. It was yeah. It was a good score. I don't think I'd give it score though. I actually want to give it a. The reason I want to give it specifically this is because I know we have the difference between story and dialogue here. I presume. Uh, so I'll give the best writing screenplay because I really thought the dialogue was good. Why not? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Screenplay. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I honestly am like, none of these are really. A yeah, it's weird. None of the actors I think are nominated. I will go. I guess I will go with editing. Um, just because things, it was pretty cohesive despite a lot going on. Um, we had some little tricks with the newspapers and stuff. So that'd be my pick. Editing's a good pick, especially with that. Opening montage. Now, okay, reinform reinform me. Story is what we would consider a screenplay. It's okay, like a so it's the treatment. 
Okay, I'm going to give this story because I do think that there are a lot of very interesting ideas here, especially around um, like organizing labor and like the philosophy of like is law like theoretical law versus law in a practical world. Um, even down to like how the city, how the townspeople are being manipulated. I like all of those like kind of idea based things. Um, so I'll give it story. All right. And we got to give it nomination. I will give it to uh, Jean Arthur. She's really good. I'm, I think she ties a lot of the tone together really well. Because uh, she plays in both the comedy and the drama pretty entertainingly, I think she shines the most when it's the comedy. But yeah, um, I mean, mine shouldn't really be a surprise. I'm gonna go with the boy, lead actor, Ronald Coleman. Yeah, I was a fan. You should have been nominated always for this instead be. of uh, Harvest. Always in our hearts. Right. Yeah, but Harvest, I feel like was more of like the meaty role. I mean, he played like two two roles kind of sort of he wasn't competing harvest. against anyone. That's like true. he was with Grant. Yeah. So, I had two options and as always when one of my options gets picked, I'll pick the other one. Uh obviously the other one the one I was going to pick was Ronald, but I think this has a good supporting actor performance. Uh I really like I think Edgar Buchanan is quite funny in this film. We didn't really talk about him much. But that's the guy who plays Sam. He's got a funny role. Uh, and he really does, like, the parts of the movie where it's just him and Dora scheming are really fun. Uh, so I'll give him supporting actor nom. Why not? You know? I feel like it's so bizarre this movie got no acting nominations when I feel like the cast is the best part of it besides Cary Grant. Um, was Gene Arthur nominated this year for something else? Because she seems like a very obvious choice. Because at least with the men, you can argue... Oh, I don't know who to pick. And in this case, it's... She she was not, but um, remember, like, she was paid less. She was, like, apparently she had just gotten off of, like, some scandal or something. Something had happened where she was, like, not... She was on thin ice. So I feel like they probably did not campaign her or do anything like that. Makes sense. Which is a shame, because she's really great in this. Um. All right, well, I, that's it. Cool. Uh, that is the 15th Academy Awards. You know what happens next week, guys? You know what happens next week? The 16th sure about that? Academy Awards. Because you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like I don't. I don't want to do. I don't want to do the 15th uh, anymore. Do that. We're stuck here forever. No. Um, we're going to the 16th Academy Awards. We have a film with uh, seven nominations again. 16 Academy Awards. Uh, drum roll, please. We are watching the follow-up film, uh, Random Harvest, Mervyn Leroy's next film after this, which is a biopic about Madame Curie. Oh, I thought I thought it was a sequel. It also has like, whoa. And the tagline uh, for it are is Mr. and Mrs. Miniver together again. So you can tell how the studio wanted to market this. What <laughs> is the movie called? Madame Curie. All it's, right. it's a Madame Curie biopic. Um, from 1943. Had seven nominations, no wins. We'll be watching it next week, you know? 
So hopefully it's pretty good. We'll see. <laughs> you know, like we never really know anymore. Um, but yeah, that's the next film we'll be watching. We um, like Aerosmith, and that's pretty similar. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily trust Murphy Leroy, so we'll see. We'll see yeah, how he no does with a, more of a conventional screenplay. So, so, yeah. All right. I'm Danny Vincent. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankments. I have another podcast called Wise with Time Dan, where we usually talk about the MCU, but right now we are in a holding pattern because we have no idea where the next MCU movie is. So we're talking about Men in Black because why not? <laughs> really? Why not? <laughs> uh, so check that out if you want to. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, All New 52, Star Wars Therapy, and Hot Trash Unlimited, where we just covered God's Not Dead 4, which is (laughs) very similar to the first three in all the (laughs) bad ways it is. That reminds me of today when I watched Ice Age 4 for the first time. And hopefully tomorrow I'll watch Scream 4. Nice. That's the last one they numbered, right? So I feel like you one. two got the better end of yep. the stick. I don't think I see. I think Sarah got the best end of the stick here. I do not. Well, we'll see. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I'm Sarah Knopf. Um, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-A-Y-29. Find me on Letterboxd. Just my name, Sarah Knopf. Um, you can find us on Facebook, the Snub Club, uh, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and Twitter, Snub Club Pod. Yeah. And thank you to our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe! Thanks, Joe. All right. We will see you guys with Madame Curie next time. Well, you'll hear us. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>